The information shared in this podcast does not necessarily represent EVRMA's stance. These podcasts are not a substitute for consultation with a physician. Hi, welcome to Fertilipod, a podcast by EVRMA. Dr. Andres Ritz. Welcome back to Fertilipod, the podcast where we discuss current topics and the latest research in the field of reproduction with some of the world's leading experts. Let's get started. In today's episode, we're doing a topic review on recurrent implantation failure and going over a recent paper on this. As it turns out, this episode will actually be published one day before the ASRM Journal Club Global on this issue, so hopefully it will serve as a nice introduction to the topic. Our guest for the day is Dr. Jason Frenasiak. Dr. Frenasiak is the lead physician and lab director of EVRMA New Jersey's Marlton office, and he is an assistant professor at Thomas Jefferson University and at Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School. He also serves as the medical director for the Liberty Corner Ambulatory Surgical Center at Marlton. Now, Dr. Frenasiak was also the guest in one of our very first episodes, and he promised he'd be back. Thank you so much for keeping your word. Absolutely, Andres. Good to be here. Glad to have you. Now, let, let's jump right in. There's no set definition for recurrent implantation failure. How, how would you define it? Yeah, so I think that recurrent implantation failure has been something that has been uh, elusive in our field, both in terms of uh, treatment, but also quite interestingly, also in terms of its definition. Um, there have been a number of definitions put out for recurrent implantation failure. Uh, some of the older definitions included the transfer of four or more good quality embryos. Uh, some of the more recent ones uh, were the transfer of three or more good quality embryos. And then most recently, uh, there have been some that have proposed cutoffs taking into account maternal age or known ploidy status of the embryos. Uh, and they would define recurrent implantation failure as the transfer of two or more embryos, uh, which are chromosomally normal. And that would typically be my definition of recurrent implantation failure. So the transfer of two or more uh, high-quality blastocysts, which were chromosomally normal. And within the broad range of entities contributing to recurrent implantation failure, what do we know about the uterine environment itself as it relates to implantation? Yeah, so there have been a number of different things when it comes to the uterine environment that uh, have been implicated or at least investigated. Some of these involve uh, things like embryo and endometrial synchrony, and I think maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Um, some of them have to do with the uterine or reproductive tract microbiome. Uh, and then so, uh, still others have really focused on the immune system and its potential implications on the uh, recurrent implantation failure landscape. Uh, there are several risk factors which are involved when it comes to recurrent implantation failure. Once we've decided that a patient has recurrent implantation failure, what are some of the 
you know, currently proposed techniques to attempt to overcome this implantation failure. What are some, what is some of the evidence behind the, the efficacy of these interventions? Sure. Well, you know, I think that some of this goes into some, goes into thinking about some of the risk factors for embryo uh, implantation failure. Um, one of the things which has been implicated is maternal age. Uh, and maternal age is interesting because it kind of gets at two different issues which are at work. That of the uterus when it comes to embryo and endometrial synchrony and that of aneuploidy your chromosomal abnormalities of the embryo. Um, this has been looked at by a number of different folks. Uh, Bruce Shapiro in 2016 looked at embryo and endometrial synchrony and found that uh, in women under age 35, 50% of embryo transfers were asynchronous, whereas those over 35 had 68% of transfers which were asynchronous. Uh, we had similarly looked at this in a publication in Human Reproduction Open in 2018 and found that from the embryo side of things, women who are under age 35 had faster development of blastocysts than women over age 35. Uh, in terms of aneuploidy, that's the other side of the coin here. It's a very well-known phenomenon, and we had looked at this back in 2013 in fertility and sterility of with over 15,000 embryo biopsies. Uh, and we had seen that there was low rates of aneuploidy in the 20s and early 30s and began to rise in the mid-30s and certainly very steeply rise in the late 40s. Uh, there were other things which I think uh, can be implications and also potential causes of treatment. Um, things such as body mass index as well known to impact implantation rates. Uh, certainly, there's increasing chances of implantation failures in patients with class 1, 2, or 3 obesity compared to those with normal BMIs. Um, the immune system, as mentioned, has been a favorite when it comes to recurrent implantation failure. Um, there are several theories with this in terms of uterine natural killer cells. Uh, uterine natural killer cells are um, the... Uh, same types of uh, cells which form peripheral natural killer cells. Uh, however, they don't have the ability to destroy cancer cell lines as some of the peripheral natural, cell, natural killer cells and therefore may not actually have deleterious effects on implanted embryos. Um, to date, a lot of the studies when it comes to natural killer cells are really considered to be investigational. Uh, and I think that when it comes to altering natural killer cells, one of the big issues is that we don't really know how to measure them appropriately as they change throughout the menstrual cycle. Um, one of the things which I think um, has certainly some good data behind it are uh, antiphospholipids. Uh, so antiphospholipid antibody syndrome is classically associated with recurrent pregnancy loss. Um, and that has to do with um, having typically a antiphospholipid antibody laboratory criteria as well as a clinical criteria, which is oftentimes um, miscarriages beyond 10 weeks. Um, 
There have been some that have suggested that adding antiphospholipid antibody syndrome to patients who meet criteria for recurrent implantation failure may, in fact, uh, allow for additional treatment for these patients. And the traditional treatment for antiphospholipid antibody with anticoagulation with aspirin and heparin may, in fact, be helpful for these individuals. Although I think that there are still some studies which need to be done in this regard. I think one of the other things that we think about has to do in, with infection inside of the uterus or chronic endometritis. Um, so chronic endometritis is a uh, oftentimes imbalance of the microbiome of the reproductive tract, and it may not be due directly to a known pathogen. Um, the uh, issue that we see with chronic endometritis uh, has to do with um, typically a staining of cells, the CD138 cells, which are increased on immunohistochemistry. Uh, and there have been studies which have shown that the prevalence of chronic endometritis and recurrent implantation failure patients is elevated, uh, perhaps as high as 15% or so. Uh, and that treatment of this chronic endometritis with antibiotics um, and potentially probiotics may be helpful in restoring the normal uterine microbiome. Um, I would say that one of the final uh, things that we think about has to do with anatomic abnormalities. So things which can go undetected on saline sonograms, such as polyps uh, or myomas or adhesive disease uh, may in fact uh, impair implantation. Uh, and so Hysteroscopy uh, with or without endometrial sampling for chronic endometritis may in fact be a helpful thing when it comes to patients with recurrent implantation failure. Um, one of the other anatomic issues that we can see is hydrosalpinks or fluid in the fallopian tubes. And we can see that with uh, women that have hydrosalpinges, they can have a negative impact on implantation in patients undergoing IVF, and that removing these or ligating the tubes may be helpful when it comes to um, improving the chances of implantation. Absolutely. That was a great review of kind of everything that, that is encompassed in, in recurrent implantation failure. And with all of those things contributing to this entity, one would think, and we've kind of thought for a long time, I guess, that this is a very prevalent thing and that we see this very often. Um, you recently published a paper with uh, Paul Pertea and with the rest of your team on how really frequent is recurrent implantation failure. Can you tell us about this study a little bit? Absolutely. This uh, study was, was a fascinating study that Dr. Pertea and our group uh, published. And what we did was we looked at over 4,400 women who had a morphologically normal uterus on ultrasound and saline sonogram. Uh, and what we did was we looked at them uh, in terms of having three sequential um, euploids, so chromosomally normal embryo transfers. Um, and uh, with that, uh, so essentially if they had a transfer and were not pregnant, they would then have a subsequent chromosomally normal embryo transfer, and if still not pregnant, have a subsequent chromosomally normal embryo transfer. And what we found was that the, uh, the likelihood of having a fetal heartbeat 
after three sequentially chromosomally normal embryo transfers was about 95.2%. And the chance of having a live birth was 92.6%. And since the uh, definition of implantation failure is having no implantation, uh, we actually found that uh, the recurrent implantation failure rates after three successive frozen embryo transfers that were chromosomally normal, these were single embryo transfers, has an incidence of less than 5%. Uh, and so I think that these data really suggest that implantation failures of uterine origin were fairly rare when you utilize euploid embryo transfers sequentially transferred over three different cycles. That is pretty amazing. And it seems like much of what we may have labeled recurrent implantation failure in the past could in fact be due to an embryo problem. If, if like you're saying, you know, the, the cumulative sustained implantation rate was 95% after three transfers. It's interesting because I we had Dr. Antonio Pellicer on the podcast very recently, and he commented that he was kind of in the camp or of the idea his whole life has been that, you know, there may be other contributing factors, but the vast majority of infertility is really an embryo issue. Um, and that that was, you know, just kind of his feeling and after years and years of experience. And it's it's interesting that this paper kind of goes to highlight kind of a similar idea. Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, the, the paper itself did have some somewhat surprising and, and I would even dare say some revolutionary impact on the way that we think about recurrent implantation failure. There has been a large focus on uterine factors or other factors such as the immune system when it comes to recurrent implantation failure. Um, and the fact that recurrent implantation failure really occurs in uh, less than 5% of the cases, I think a lot of things that we had previously been labeling either uterine or immune or other potential causes of implantation failure are in fact due to um, having uh, number one, uh, chromosomally normal embryos for transfer. And number two, and I think this is important, having a synchronous frozen embryo transfer. That means the embryo and the endometrium are lined up in their ability to implant and receive an embryo uh, in the uterus. And I think that having those two uh, major factors taken off the table, the chromosomal abnormality of the embryo and the embryo and endometrial synchrony are, are key when it comes to really defining what recurrent implantation failure is. Yeah. With, with all of that kind of put together and with the information from the study, with these results, how would you, uh, first of all, has it changed a little bit, I guess, but how, how would you now counsel a patient that now has I was going to say her first implantation failure, but maybe even who met your your original definition, right? The one with two previous euploid embryo transfers um, that didn't work. How would you counsel that patient? Yeah, what we had found with this was that the chance of success is really not significantly diminished after one or even two chromosomally normal embryo transfers. Um, so. I would certainly uh, encourage these patients to continue with another chromosomally normal embryo transfer. Uh, I think that they, the chances of success remain high, uh, even after one or two failures. 
Um, and I think it's uh, somewhat important for us to remember that it wasn't too long ago that patients would fail time and time and time again. Uh, we have just gotten so much more advanced with our understanding of embryology and uh, also embryo and endometrial synchrony that we're seeing success happen much, much more frequently. And how about if this patient were kind of within that 5% and failed that third implantation, that sorry, that third transfer, um, how would you, what would your course of action be with this patient? Right. So as mentioned, I think that there's been a huge focus on the immune system when it comes to these causes of implantation failure. You know, I really am of the mindset that we are just not there yet when it comes to the study and intervention of the immune system itself. Um, I do think that for those patients in that 5% that Doing a hysteroscopy with endometrial sampling to rule out chronic endometritis is a very reasonable step. Um, there has been shown that with hysteroscopy, you can pick up abnormalities which might be missed on other uh, modalities which assess the inside of the uterus. Uh, and then as mentioned, I think chronic endometritis is a potential cause of recurrent implantation failure. And this can be rel uh, relatively easily treated with antibiotics and then perhaps probiotics to add back the normal microbiome, that normal lactobacilli dominance that we see in the reproductive tract. I think also optimizing weight uh, in, in terms of patients that have an elevated BMI is also a very important, although challenging thing to do, but providing support to these patients with diet and exercise programs I think would be important. And finally, I may consider a hysterosalpingogram to rule out an occult hydrosalpings uh, in the event that that may be impacting um, the uh, implantation rates. Thank you. Dr. Fernizek, this, this review of the current implantation failure has been awesome. Um, as always, it's been a pleasure having you on. Um, now, now that I know that you keep your word, I'll ask you once more, will you be back with us? Andres, I would be absolutely happy to be back with you, uh, if only you'll have me. We definitely will. Thank you so much. Take care. This has been another episode of FertiliPod by EVRMA. Thank you so much for listening. Tune in next week for more research and topic discussions on all things reproductive medicine. Next week, we have a very, very special episode. We'll be having coffee with Dr. Alan DeCherney. Don't miss it. See you next week.